Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington for Law 360. And joining me now from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. I just feel like this has been, frankly, a whirlwind of a week already. It's been pretty crazy. I mean, there's been a ton of developments over on the Supreme Court docket itself, but even in Congress with the uh, ongoing confirmation process for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Plus, there's this little thing called the election happening, and the Supreme Court has been just a recurring issue throughout as we kind of come into the final stages here. But uh, Natalie, why don't you set up for for us what we're going to be talking about this week? Yeah, so we'll be covering all of that. Docket update, confirmation hearing update. We also have a special bonus interview at the end of the podcast, so please stay tuned, about a topic that Law360 has been on top of, gender diversity. We have a special glass ceiling report, and uh, we'll specifically be talking about gender diversity among Supreme Court clerks with Jimmy. I know you had a really great interview with Deanne Maynard, the co-chair of Morrison and Forster's appellate and Supreme Court practice, so we'll be, we'll be listening to that later. That's right. But as you mentioned, let's first just give a brief overview of what's going on on Capitol Hill. Uh, So the Senate Judiciary Committee voted Judge Amy Coney Barrett out of committee on Thursday morning, just a few hours before we were recording here today. Uh, Democrats obviously boycotted the hearing, so it was a 12 to 0 vote. Um, And instead, the Democrats chose to fill their seats with posters of people affected by the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act obviously being on the Supreme Court's docket in a case coming up in the uh, November session, just a week after the election. So that means the final confirmation vote is now set for sometime early next week. Some people saying it uh, could be on as early as Monday. Um, that gives Republicans, obviously, you know, the schedule that they wanted to, to get her on the Supreme Court before Election Day. Um, I thought it was also interesting to hear from Joe Biden, who in a little preview released by 60 Minutes today, uh, said that he is studying the issue of Supreme Court reform. We've obviously talked a bit about the idea of court packing on this show. Uh, Biden has been resistant to embrace this idea of court packing, but now he's saying that he's considering, if elected, setting up basically a bipartisan commission to study the issue of reforming the Supreme Court in some way and taking recommendations from them. And he emphasized that it would be consist of liberal and conservative constitutional scholars. So we'll definitely have uh, more to talk about then if that actually becomes a reality. But Natalie, do you want to uh, kick us off with what we had to see from the Supreme Court's actual docket this week? Yeah. Uh, to start off, right on Monday, the court took up two major immigration-related cases that have been coming out of the Ninth Circuit. The first one uh, was a challenge to the administration's decision to divert $2.5 billion of funds that had been earmarked for defense spending uh, to instead finance the president's long-promised border wall. Uh, The Ninth Circuit in June had ruled that the money transfer violated the appropriations clause, so that's now up in front of the, the Supreme Court. Also on Monday, uh, the court took up uh, another major case that challenges the administration's policy forcing asylum seekers to wait out their immigration court proceedings in Mexico. Again, here, the Ninth Circuit had sided with those bringing the challenge, saying the policy uh, violated obligations to not send asylum seekers to places where they could be persecuted. So these have not been scheduled. Um, It is likely they could be heard next year. Kind of towards the end of the term. 
Right. And that's assuming, of course, that Trump is still the president because you could you could see if Biden is elected that the cases could possibly be moot because he would no longer be pursuing those administration policies. Potentially, although, I, I you know, I, I think there's also this this question about the presidential authority to make certain immigration policy changes. Um, so it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see whether those bear out even under a Biden presidency, if, if the cases uh, could be continued. Well, speaking of controversial uh, Trump policies, the Supreme Court also decided that it was going to hold a November 30th hearing in the ongoing dispute over whether Trump can exclude unauthorized immigrants from the administration's census counting efforts. So this is an effort, obviously, that Democratic states and other groups have challenged in court, um, saying that this move to exclude unauthorized immigrants from the count will deprive citizens nationwide of federal funding and political adequate political representation in Congress. Obviously, the things that the census data is used to build up off of a three judge panel sitting on a federal court in New York said that the Trump administration's effort to exclude these uh, people from the census count, it, it's a blatant violation of federal law governing census and the apportionment, the court said. So that ruling is now obviously on appeal by the Trump administration to the Supreme Court and we'll be uh, awaiting to see what the justices have to say in the November 30th hearing. Great. Um, the justices have, uh, at least in the meantime, keeping busy with a lot of election cases. Uh, on Monday, there was uh, an interesting one, though, that, that came out of Pennsylvania. It was a 4-4 split decision, so they couldn't agree. So it resulted in keeping in place um, Pennsylvania's deadline extension for mail-in ballots for the upcoming election. They had given uh, three more days for ballots to be received as long as they were mailed by Election Day. And Chief Justice Roberts in this uh, particular election case ended up voting with liberals, um, which was a bit of, of a surprise. And I, I think um, also potentially exposes a, a bit of an interesting fault line for where a ninth judge might uh, kind of be a tiebreaker. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because just a day later on Tuesday, uh, the Republicans actually came out victorious in an Alabama case. So this was a case where uh, Republicans won uh, an order from the Supreme Court on a five to three vote that basically reinstated um, their ban on curbside voting. Uh, Alabama has a Republican secretary of state that says that curbside voting uh, does not comport with state election law and sought to eliminate the practice from the upcoming election. Um, uh, a number of voters with disabilities had sued in court saying that this violates the Americans with Disabilities Act in light of the dangers that COVID-19 poses to in person voting for certain high-risk individuals like people with uh, disabilities. So it is interesting that in in this case, Chief Justice obviously sided with his conservative colleagues, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, wrote a dissent joined by uh, Justices Breyer and Kagan. Um, those are obviously now the three remaining liberals on the court after the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But um, it, it provided some, you know, outside the world of intimate court watchers, a little bit of whiplashing. The court kind of go from <laughs> one thing to the next just a day later. But I think it under kind of underscores a thread that we've seen in some of the Supreme Court's recent election cases where you've had Roberts kind of deferring to state election officials, um, whether it be the Democratic Secretary of State in Pennsylvania supporting that extension for the the mail-in ballot deadline, 
um, on Monday or on Tuesday, deferring to the Republican Secretary of State's decision to ban curbside voting. So that could potentially be um, a, a a sign of more things to come as these election cases continue to be litigated in the Supreme Court of the ensuing weeks. Yeah, and I know they've already taken up a, a few more or considering a few more. So I'm sure we'll be reporting out some of those decisions in, in the coming weeks, as, as you said. Now, turning to our main segment this week, I had the opportunity to speak to Deanne Maynard, um, who, as you mentioned, Natalie, is the co-chair of Morrison and Forrester's Supreme Court in appellate practice. And we spoke about the issue of gender diversity among Supreme Court clerks. Now, we don't often talk about clerks on this show. We talk about the justices themselves and what they say in their opinions and what they read from the bench. But oftentimes, it's the clerks that play very instrumental roles behind the scenes in crafting these opinions before they actually see the light of day. Um, and so it was really kind of fun in, to talk to Deanne about you know, how her experience as a Supreme Court clerk kind of shaped her career and the importance of you know, just a, a hiring a diverse group of people, whether we're talking about gender or ethnic background or educational background in some of these very important roles. Yeah, I know that's something that's come up um, just in other stories uh, regarding gender issues among the Supreme Court bar and and among the Solicitor General's office, the makeup of, of, the, of the gender breakdown there is that, you know, concerns about women not getting pushed from law school to take these kind of clerkships, to go after these kind of clerkships, which can be such a pivotal stepping stone to, you know, having a big career in the Supreme Court bar. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, I think the data pretty clearly shows that men have dominated these positions throughout, um, you know, the Supreme Court's history ever since the first female clerk was hired in 1944. There was a breakthrough in 2018 after the addition of Justice Brett Kavanaugh to the court where his decision to hire all women as his clerks that year kind of tipped um, the numbers over the uh, 50% line, giving women for the first time in the Supreme Court's 230-year history, a majority of Supreme Court clerkship positions that year. And Justice Kavanaugh, um, for all the dispute and all of the, um, obviously, emotion that went into his very tense confirmation battle and the decades-old allegations of sexual assault, um, he actually did win some big ups from uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, in her final years, as she was really happy to see that the those numbers improving. Now, you know the the Supreme Court hasn't quite kept up that uh, that record of parity, and it and the numbers kind of slumped down slightly in the October 2019 term. But there are signs that the Supreme Court is still you know paying attention to the issue of hiring more women as Supreme Court clerks, and uh, I think a lot of people in the Supreme Court bar are pretty happy to see that. So with that, let's get to this interview that you did, Jimmy, with Deanne, who really dived into how more gender diversity at this clerkship level could spur broader change in the industry. When we talk about gender diversity in, you know, among Supreme Court clerks, I just kind of want to get a picture of how important that is for things like, you know, people often talk about the pipeline. So I wanted to ask you about your experience coming off of your clerkship. You mentioned that you, you know, you went on to eventually argue before the court after, you know, there were three uh, female justices. So can you just talk generally about how it kind of helped your career along the way? 
It's definitely been, in many ways, the cornerstone of my career. I doubt that I would be the co-chair of the appellate and Supreme Court practice at Morrison and Forrester without having done my Supreme Court clerkships. It's, I'm sure, you know, was key to my being able to get the job in the Solicitor General's office. And I was hired, I was in private practice for, I think, almost nine years and then applied to the SG's office. And I'm sure that having the Supreme Court clerkships on my resume and having had that experience, you know, helped me get that job. And then that office, as I know you know, is, you know, represents the United States in the Supreme Court. And so that is what an honor and a privilege to be, you know, an advocate for the United States in the Supreme Court. But that's where I got my first argument in the Supreme Court. I had had other arguments in private practice, but, and it's, it's really tough to get that first argument. So, you know, having, and, and, um, and then, you know, fast forward five years and Morrison and Forrester called Beth Brinkman, who was the head of MOFO's appellate practice then was joining the Obama administration to head up the civil appeals section at Justice Department. And MOFO was looking to find a successor to head the the appellate practice. And, you know, at that point, I had more than 10 Supreme Court arguments and I fit the bill for what they were looking for. So that definitely, you know, it all flowed, you know, you can look back to my clerkships and say it led to here. Yeah. Speaking of arguments, it's something that's been given some media attention in recent years. It's just kind of the breakdown between male and female advocates at the Supreme Court. And it seems that one place in which those numbers are kind of lacking I should say significantly lacking is in private practice like yourself um, and, you know, the number of female attorneys from law firms that are getting up and arguing these cases before the Supreme Court. Do you think it's just a it's just a case of time that maybe as more, um, uh, you know, uh, female attorneys get clerkships at the Supreme Court and they, you know, come through the solicitor general's office that those numbers over time will improve? Or do you think there's something that still needs to be done to kind of create a little bit more balance in, you know, the number of female attorneys from private practice that are actually arguing at the Supreme Court? What's your, what's your perspective on that? Well, I'd love to see more women from private practice arguing each term in the court. Um, I am hopeful that there are, uh, multiple women in private practice today who have substantial experience arguing the Supreme Court. Um, I mean, I can think of half a dozen off the top of my head who are from, uh, many from the Solicitor General's office who are now in private practice, and some of them just recently so. So I think, you know, I think as as they, um, you know, stay in private practice longer, I do expect to see more and more of them appearing more frequently in, in the court again. Um, and then there are other women who like, you know, who, who, ha- who do appear regularly in the Supreme Court from private practice, like Lisa Blatt. So, right. you know, I think, um, but I think um, I am hopeful. It's also interesting that some of, you know, the most prolific arguing attorneys like, like Lisa, I don't think she actually was a Supreme, former Supreme Court clerk. So it's not exclusively uh, Supreme Court clerks that go on to, you know, dominate the, the Supreme Court bar. But uh, so as your kind of position as the co-leader of the, the practice at Morrison Forster, do you see that as particularly valuable experience when you're looking at, you know, recruiting young associates coming up through the appellate practice, that experience at the Supreme Court? How do you how do you value that experience for for other young attorneys coming up and maybe looking to join your firm? 
I, I think it is, it's great experience. And obviously we value that experience highly, but like you say, it's not the, it's not the be all and all. There are certainly excellent attorneys. And, you know, um, I worked with Lisa Blatt in the Solicitor General's office, Patty Millette in the Solicitor General's office, you know, both of whom were, uh, you know, our terrific oral advocates. Patty now, of course, is on the DC circuit. So now right. she's in the position of grilling other advocates <laughs> instead of answering questions. But, um, you know, there's not one way to make it. And that, you know, there, so, um, it is a, it's, it's a valuable credential, but it isn't the only, only way to make it. All right. Well, I don't have any other questions for you, Dan, but I really appreciate your time today. So thanks. Uh, thanks for making time again. Thanks for having me. Jimmy, that was so great to hear uh, you and Deanne talk about this topic. It's, I think, such an important one. Um, for, and for all our listeners, you know, if, if you want to read more about gender diversity issues in, in this realm, but also in, in other realms within the legal industry, please, please check out um, our glass ceiling package, which just came out this week. Uh, we have several reporters who, who did some really interesting data dives um, into the numbers of women across several sections of the industry well i think that about does it for this week natalie uh, i can't wait to jump back on the podcast with you next week uh, where i suspect we'll be talking about some pretty big supreme court news in the edition of the supreme court's latest justice in who is probably going to be amy coney barrett but in the meantime it's been great talking with you likewise thanks so much jimmy and thanks to our listeners for tuning in We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Contributing reporters this week were Andrew Craigie, Suzanne Moniak, and Haley Knoth. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats, and for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, just search Law360 and The Term. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe.